Service or through brownpapertickets.com. Please find full information on kpfa.org. For Christian Parenti, July 14th. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley. 89.3 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. And good afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. To celebrate Gay Pride Month, we are bringing you the first episode of From the Vault. Christopher Escherwood is the focus for this episode. Escherwood's literary career began in 1928 with the publication of his first novel, All the Conspirators. And he is probably best known for The Berlin Stories, a collection of writings that fictionalized his life in pre-World War II Berlin. This book was later adapted as the stage play I Am a Camera and the popular musical Cabaret. In this program, you will hear a number of rare recordings of Christopher Escherwood, including a recording of the play The Ascent of F6, written by Escherwood and W.H. Auden in 1937, adopted, produced, and performed in 1962 at Pacifica Station KPFK Los Angeles by Escherwood and Auden themselves, among others and an address by Escherwood called A Personal Statement, given at the University of California, Berkeley, as part of the series The Writer at Mid-Century, The Moral Crisis. Later, we're joined by Sue Hudson, curator of literary manuscripts at the Huntington Library, who discusses the significance of Christopher Escherwood and the recordings held by the Pacifica Radio Archives. So stay tuned for part one of this edition from From the Vault. Overture to the popular American stage musical Cabaret, based on Christopher Isherwood's Berlin stories. And to celebrate Gay Pride Month, Mr. Isherwood is the subject for this week's From the Vault, the Pacifica Radio Archives weekly program that brings our history out of the vault and onto the radio. Today we will hear a number of rare recordings of Mr. Isherwood, including a play written by Isherwood and W.H. Auden in 1937 and produced at KPFK Studios in 1962. But before we let you hear Mr. Isherwood, let's get some of the basics. Christopher Isherwood was born in England in 1904, came to the U.S. in 1939, and lived in Santa Monica from then until his death in 1986. His literary career began in 1928 with the publication of his first novel, All the Conspirators, and he's probably best known for the Berlin stories, stories that fictionalize his life in pre-World War II Berlin and that were adapted as the stage play I Am a Camera and the popular musical Cabaret. And now let's listen to Christopher Isherwood reading from The Last of Mr. Norris and Goodbye to Berlin on From the Vault. The Last of Mr. Norris is a book which describes a single character, 
Mr. Norris, who is a sort of gentlemanly crook, essentially a small-time crook, who is dabbling rather dangerously in deep waters. He plays around a little with espionage, with the communists, with various forces which are a great deal too big for him. He is by temperament a character who is much happier with a little modest blackmail and the arrangement of deals. This character um, is presented uh, as a sympathetic character and uh, many have found him so, although as one critic once said, he has not one single redeeming feature. The eye of this novel, who incidentally is not named Christopher Isherwood, but William Bradshaw, which were the two middle names of my full name. I dropped them when I became an American citizen because Christopher Isherwood is quite enough load to carry through life without the other two. William goes to see him at his suggestion in Berlin. And this is a description of William's first visit to Mr. Norris's apartment. Mr. Norris had two front doors to his flat. They stood side by side. Both had peepholes in the center and brightly polished knobs and brass nameplates. On the left-hand plate was engraved Arthur Norris, private. And on the right hand, Arthur Norris, export and import. After a moment's hesitation, I pressed the button of the left-hand bell. The bell was startlingly loud. It must have been clearly audible all over the flat. Nevertheless, nothing happened. No sound came from within. I was just about to ring again when I became aware that an eye was regarding me through the peephole in the door. How long it had been there, I didn't know. I felt embarrassed and uncertain whether to stare the eye out of its hole or merely pretend that I hadn't seen it. I examined the ceiling, the floor, the walls, then ventured a furtive glance to make sure that it had gone. It hadn't. Vexed, I turned my back on the door altogether. Nearly a minute passed. When finally I did turn around, it was because the other door, the export and import door, had opened and a young man stood on the threshold. Is Mr. Norris in? I asked. The young man eyed me suspiciously. He had watery light yellow eyes and a blotched complexion the color of porridge. His head was huge and round, set awkwardly on a short, plump body. He wore a smart lounge suit and patent leather shoes. I didn't like the look of him at all. Have you an appointment? Yes. My tone was extremely curt. At once the young man's face curved into oily smiles. Oh, it's Mr. Bradshaw. One moment, if you please. My astonishment, 
he closed the door in my face, only to reappear an instant later at the left-hand door, standing aside for me to enter the flat. This behavior seemed all the more extraordinary because, as I noticed immediately I was inside, the private side of the entrance hall was divided from the export side only by a thick hanging curtain. Mr. Norris wishes me to say that he will be with you in one moment, said the big-headed young man, treading delicately across the thick carpet on the toes of his patent leather shoes. He spoke very softly, as if he were afraid of being overheard. Opening the door of a large sitting room, he silently motioned me to take a chair and withdrew. Left alone, I looked round me slightly mystified. Everything was in good taste, carpet, the colour scheme, but the room was curiously without character. It was like a room on the stage or in the window of a high-class furnishing store. Elegant, expensive, discreet. I had expected Mr. Norris's background to be altogether more exotic. Something Chinese would have suited him, with golden and scarlet dragons. The young man had left the door ajar. The gentleman is here, sir. And now, with even greater distinctness, Mr. Norris's voice was audible as he replied from behind a door in the opposite wall of the sitting room. Oh, Izzy, thank you. I wanted to laugh. This little comedy was so unnecessary as to seem slightly sinister. A moment later, Mr. Norris himself came into the room, nervously rubbing his manicured hands together. My dear boy, this is indeed an honor. Delighted to welcome you under the shadow of my humble roof tree. He didn't look well, I thought. His face wasn't so rosy today, and there were rings under his eyes. He sat down for a moment in an armchair, but rose again immediately, as if he were not in the mood for sitting still. The rest of this book describes how William gradually became involved with Mr. Norris and his plots and plans, and in the end, very nearly got into some extremely melodramatic trouble. The book is basically melodramatic. Perhaps one should say a kind of melodramatic political farce. My second book about Berlin, Goodbye to Berlin, is altogether uh, more serious uh, in its basic intention, although it contains uh, a number of uh, comic figures. The best known of these is the girl called Sally Bowles, and her story was dramatized by John Van Druten, my great friend, now dead to make a play called I am a camera the title being a quotation from a passage in this book I'll read you now a description of my first meeting with Sally Bowles from Goodbye to Berlin one afternoon early in October I was invited to black coffee at Fritz Wendell's flat Fritz always invited you to black coffee with emphasis on the black. 
He was very proud of his coffee. People used to say that it was the strongest in Berlin. Fritz himself was dressed in his usual coffee party costume. A very thick white yachting sweater and very light blue flannel trousers. He greeted me with his full-lipped, luscious smile. Hello, Chris. Hello, Fritz. How are you? Fine. He bent over the coffee machine, his sleek black hair unplastering itself from his scalp and falling in richly scented locks over his eyes. This darn thing doesn't go, he added. How's business, I asked. Lousy and terrible, Fritz grinned richly. Or I pull off a new deal in the next month, or I go as a gigolo. Either or, I corrected, from force of professional habit. I'm speaking a lousy English just now, drawled Fritz with great self-satisfaction. Sally says maybe she'll give me a few lessons. Who's Sally? Why, I forgot you don't know Sally. Too bad of me. Eventually she's coming around here this afternoon. Is she nice? Fritz rolled his naughty black eyes, handing me a rum-moistened cigarette from his patent tin. Marvellous, he drawled. Eventually I believe I'm getting crazy about her. Oh, who is she? What does she do? She's an English girl, an actress. Sings at the Lady Windermere. Hot stuff, believe me. A few minutes later, Sally herself arrived. Am I terribly late, Fritz, darling? Only half of an hour, I suppose, Fritz drawled, beaming with proprietary pleasure. May I introduce Mr. Isherwood, Miss Bowles? Mr. Isherwood is commonly known as Chris. I'm not, I said. Fritz is about the only person who's ever called me Chris in my life. Do you mind if I use your telephone, sweet? Sure, go ahead. Fritz caught my eye. Come into the other room, Chris. I want to show you something. He was evidently longing to hear my first impressions of Sally, his new acquisition. For heaven's sake, don't leave me alone with this man, she exclaimed, or he'll seduce me down the telephone. He's most terribly passionate. As she dialed the number, I noticed that her fingernails were painted emerald green, a color unfortunately chosen, for it called attention to her hands, which were much stained by cigarette smoking and as dirty as a little girl's. She was dark enough to be Fritz's sister. Her face was long and thin, powdered white. She had very large brown eyes, which should have been darker, to match her hair and the pencil she used for her eyebrows. Hello, she cooed, pursing her brilliant cherry lips as though she were going to kiss the mouthpiece. Is das du mein Liebling? Her voice opened in a fatuously sweet smile. Fritz and I sat watching her like a performance at the theatre. Was wollen wir machen? Morgan Abend. Oh, wie wunderbar! Nein, nein, ich werde bleiben heute Abend zu Hause. Ja, ja, ich werde wirklich bleiben zu Hause. Auf Wiedersehen, mein Liebling. She hung up the receiver and turned to us triumphantly. That's the man I slept with last night, she announced. He makes love marvelously. He's an absolute genius at business. And he's terribly rich. 
She came and sat down on the sofa beside Fritz, sinking back into the cushions with a sigh. Give me some coffee, will you, darling? I'm simply dying of thirst. And soon we were on to Fritz's favorite topic, love. He pronounced it, laugh. This week, we had the good fortune of talking to Sue Hodson, curator of literary manuscripts at the Huntington Library, about the significance of Isherwood and the Pacifica Radio Archive recordings. The library is the proud home of the Christopher Isherwood Archives. We received this collection in about 1999, and um, five years later was the centenary of his birth. 2004, and we did an exhibition about Christopher Isherwood highlighting his life and career. It was a spectacular success. We were extremely gratified at the reception and the high attendance um, that, that came with the exhibition. Public visitors just flocked in and really delved into Isherwood's life and career. We had meetings. We had concert series to go with it. We had symposia, lectures, readings of Isherwood's works. It was just a festive summer and a time of great rejoicing in his in his life. Let's talk about Christopher Ishwood's voice and what does it mean to scholars when they hear the actual author? That kind of documentary evidence is absolutely critically important for scholars. When they can hear what the author was thinking about when he created a character, when he wrote a novel, um, it gives them insight behind that novel. It gives him insight into the way the author is thinking as he creates his work of literature. And that's why that's so important for author, for scholars to, to have that kind of source available to them. The thing that I think is wonderful about Isherwood's voice and the pauses that he does is he clearly is forming his sentences so thoughtfully, so carefully, so that what he says seemingly extemporaneously is actually brilliantly planned and that really supports what we see in the archive I have never before seen an author who was so meticulous and so careful so patient so methodical in the way he went about writing his stories and books Isherwood had in my view endless patience to rework and rework and rework until he got it just right. Um, he took more than seven years on um, The World in the Evening, and it got changed from third person to first person, back again, changed in its structure, changed in every way possible, and throughout, and we have this documented in the papers, you see him um, adjusting and refining and redefining everything about the novel, and to see this now behind the scenes for the Berlin stories is really fascinating to hear the thought that went into it, to hear his view of what the book is about. That's invaluable for scholars. In 2003, Sue Hudson joined the Pacifica Radio Archives advisory panel to select the first 50 Pacifica Radio Archives recordings to be preserved as part of our first National Endowment for the Arts Preservation Grant. 
After identifying all the Christopher Isherwood recordings, the Pacifica Radio Archive staff digitized and then donated the CDs to the Christopher Isherwood papers at the Huntington Library. Here is Sue to tell us how the Archives Preservation Project has helped understand Isherwood. It's immensely important for the archive to have these tapes, and the Huntington and I are both very grateful to you and the Pacifica Radio Archives for making that possible. Um, those tape recordings are listened to by scholars who flock in to the Huntington to do research on, on the Isherwood collection. And I might add that the Isherwood collection immediately became the second most heavily used collection, literary collection, in the library, which is pretty remarkable. Um, um, so scholarship is thriving and, and galloping ahead for Isherwood. The reason the recordings are so important is to hear his own words, to hear the, his intonation, the way he speaks and the way he formulates his thought is really important for people to get a, a, a good sense of the man himself. And these recordings really serve that purpose. Um, I think a lot of people are a little bit surprised that Isherwood's voice is a little bit high-pitched. Um, and that's, I think, one of the more endearing things about him. It really humanizes him for people who approach him just through reading his works. On August 30th, 1962, Christopher Isherwood gave a talk at the University of California, Berkeley, as part of a series entitled The Writer at Mid-Century, The Moral Crisis. Here is Christopher Isherwood's personal statement. Let me talk a little about my conception of the writer and what I think the writer's duties are and what their nature is. There's a very convenient uh, word in Sanskrit which has lately become quite popularized, although not always used correctly, the word Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A. Now, the word Dharma meant originally the duties which pertained to any one of the Hindu castes. Uh, if you were Brahmin, you had one set of obligations. If you were Kshatriya, you had another set. If you, had, if you were uh, a merchant, you had another set. Uh, and so on and so forth. And the concept was that from a purely spiritual point of view, it was extremely dangerous to assume the duties, the dharma, of another group, because uh, that wasn't what your nature intended you to do. Now, of course, it is many, many thousands of years since the caste system became all mixed up and lost its um, psychological relevance in this respect. But the concept of Dharma is still something that can help us, and we can say to ourselves, I think, that um, if somebody has, for example, and this applies, needless to say, to an enormous variety of occupations, if somebody, for example, has the talent of being a writer, that this does impose certain duties. I prefer to think that they are duties primarily to himself, but of course uh, they are duties which 
um, reflect or relate to other people as well. Now, in discussing this question of the writer's dharma, I've found myself again and again using the term, uh, the convenient term, the outsider. Because I feel that there are a couple of very important distinctions to be drawn here uh, about the writer's position in relation to society. Uh, I feel that uh, the writer is an outsider in the sense that by very virtue of observing society and um, drawing back from it sufficiently to say something about it, or about the tiniest or largest part of it, it doesn't matter, he is necessarily putting himself, in a certain sense, outside society. How many other people are also outside society is, of course, neither here nor there. We're isolating the writer in discussing this. I'm not claiming any special uh, status for the writer, but it's our business to discuss the writer this evening. Uh, now, when you are outside society in this sense, uh, as an outsider, as an observer, uh, you are, of course, uh, not hostile to society in the sense that a rebel is hostile. You may be a rebel and an outsider. You may go through a phase of rebellion, uh, but not necessarily so. Um, the outsider is really like a kind of friend outside a marriage or a friend outside a family who gives uh, a kind of disinterested view of the matter. And the really important thing is that he does retain the power to react on every single new occasion as though it were the first occasion. What I mean by that is that uh, normally, uh, supposing we go along with a certain political group or a group of any other character, we pledge, at least for a, a fair amount of time, our loyalty to that group. And in our function as political beings, uh, we have to do that for practical purposes. But the writer, as a writer, is constantly exercising uh, a criticism. He's, he cannot go along, uh, and his ascent, uh, his temporary ascent to anything uh, that uh, he assents to is not the same as the ordinary assent of somebody who has joined a party. He isn't even like a loyal opposition uh, because uh, a loyal opposition also has a kind of rigid attitude and is in fact uh, always out to defeat the party in power and then to gain a kind of uh, authority for itself. In the case of a writer, he doesn't want this authority at all. He simply asks and wants to observe and to participate at this curious kind of remove to discover meaning in what he sees and observes 
and to convey that meaning. Um, and this, it seems to me, is a very important uh, point to bear in mind uh, when uh, we go on um, to the question of the writer in his political involvement. You see, I think that when a writer writes, he writes for an X number of individuals, maybe for millions and millions, but he writes for each individual as an individual. Uh, this is, uh, I believe, one of the differences between art and propaganda. Uh, I think that when you write uh, for a lot of people, uh, when you're writing propaganda, you're writing for them in the mass, and uh, which is quite a different thing. Um, in propaganda, you are concerned in moving uh, a mass of people, or trying to. In art, what you're really doing is doing your very best and then saying, take it or leave it. I'm sorry, but I cannot add anything to my plea to you to like this. If you don't like it, that's too bad, I'm sorry. And this is what I mean by having, in fact, an individual approach to every single separate reader. To every single separate reader, you're saying, in fact, Take it or leave it. For that reason... You've been listening to part one of a special episode from Pacifica Archives honoring Gay Pride, where we have focused today's show on the work of Christopher Escherwood. Stay tuned for next week, or tune in next week, when we bring you part two of this special broadcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>